My name's Nick Sawyer, and welcome to the Swap Podcast, where we exchange news and views on the latest trends in derivatives and finance. The financial industry got a stark reminder of the threat posed by cyber attacks earlier this year when technology provider Ion Markets revealed that a cybersecurity event had halted some of its services, causing disruption in certain parts of the derivatives market for several days. Some users of ION services had to resort to the manual processing of trades as a stopgap measure and delay regulatory reporting, forcing the Commodity Futures Trading Commission to suspend publication of its weekly Commitments of Traders report. Not surprisingly, the ransomware attack has focused the minds of both market participants and regulators on cyber resilience in the financial markets. And this was a key discussion point at the March meeting of the CFTC's Technology Advisory Committee, or TAC. It wasn't the only important issue discussed, though. Other agenda items included issues related to decentralized finance and crypto, and so-called responsible artificial intelligence. These are all big, meaty issues, so we're fortunate to have the Technology Advisory Committee's sponsor, CFTC Commissioner Christy Goldsmith-Romero, as our guest for this episode. I'm also pleased to have a former sponsor of the TAC with me today as well, is the CEO, Scott O'Malia. Now, Scott, you were the sponsor of the TAC when you were at the CFTC a decade or so ago. As a former TAC sponsor, what will you be asking the current TAC sponsor? Well, I'll certainly be asking about the issues you mentioned, the cyber attack on ION, as well as some issues related to crypto. I'd like to find out about how regulators are responding to uh, cyber threats and to what extent they can help drive best practices in cyber resilience. On crypto, I'll be asking uh, about the lessons that they've learned uh, regarding the collapse of FTX as well as others and what's needed to provide a greater regulatory and legal certainty. But I'd also like to get the commissioner's view on how technology can help drive efficiency for regulators and market participants. This was a big focus of mine when I was a tax sponsor, and I'd also like to hear how and where Commissioner Goldsmith Romero thinks technology can drive better outcomes for the CFTC as well. Fantastic. Well, let's get straight to it. Scott, over to you. Christy, welcome to The Swap. We're really pleased to have you on the show. Yeah, I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. Now, before becoming a commissioner, you spent a decade as the Special Inspector General to the Troubled Asset Relief Program, or TARP. And you've also worked on the staff at the SEC, including as counsel to two SEC chairs. I'd like to start with a question on your impressions of the CFTC While it is a relatively small entity within the U.S. government, and I personally think it has an outsized impact on the global financial regulation, what has surprised you most about the CFTC and what do you think about its role within the government and within the international arena? Yeah, let me start on that second point because I agree with you. When you look at what's happened globally with commodity markets, with the pandemic and the supply chain issues and then Russia's war with Ukraine. I mean, certainly the CFTC is at the center of global economic issues. And so that's how I think of the role. I've spent the last 12 years at Treasury. So I'm going to look at everything through a lens that includes sort of looking at the whole economy and then how all the pieces fit in. I do think it's always important for everyone at the CFTC to look at the issues through that global economic lens because we've seen these markets really play an outsized role in the global economy for the last couple of years, especially this last year with Russia's war. So what surprises me is how small the budget is compared to our responsibility. It's really very unfortunate. And the other thing that surprised me is that when I was coming here, a lot of people at CFTC said, well, we're very different than other financial regulators. 
having served at SEC and Treasury, it, I see it as very similar. You have smart people who care about the markets and everyone's kind of navigating many of the same issues. So I think the CFTC could actually be more effective if we work more closely with all the financial regulators, not just for their different perspectives, but honestly to leverage their greater resources given how small our budget is. So not just at the like chairman or commissioner level, but more at the staff level. Some do, and I think that should be increased. It's really this kind of whole of government approach with each regular playing its part. But as far as I can see, CFTC is very strong financial regulator in the group of federal financial regulators. Now, just over a year ago, you were sworn in last March. What's topped your agenda during the first year and what can we expect to top your agenda in the year ahead? So at confirmation, I said my number one priority would be to ensure that markets are working well. That's topped my agenda. That's going to continue to top my agenda during my entire tenure. I think that's the the foundation of the role. That means the lingering impacts of these supply chain issues, the other issues from the pandemic, all the consequences from Russia's war in Ukraine. You look at what happened with energy markets. This has been the global issue that's dominated my conversations, particularly with the European and the UK regulators where you are, but it's also dominated my conversations when I've been talking with the US financial regulators. So then you look at agriculture, wheat with Ukraine being the breadbasket of the world and the other impact on commodities. So I've been spending time kind of ag groups to try to understand that. With the high volatility leading to the high prices, you know, I called for deep dive studies into the trading I've done a lot of trade analysis in my time just to ensure that prices are appropriate, reflective of supply and demand. We don't have excess speculation or manipulation. We've done also enforcement in this area. And then something I raised at Commissioner Pham's GMAC meeting, which is we've had now so many unexpected events. So I think it's time to expect the unexpected and start planning for it. That's the first. Two, holding the line on Dodd-Frank reforms and kind of fighting against post-crisis complacency and unchecked risk-taking. This is something that I've done my entire career. I spent a lot of it working related to the financial crisis. And so I will constantly work on that. Cyber is also something I raised in my confirmation hearing. I've been engaged in that since day one. I spent a lot of time talking with our CISO and others about CFTC's own cybersecurity, our move to the cloud, how that went our move now to zero trust architecture. Cybersecurity is just something I've been talking about within the federal government since I got here. And this is um, something that we actually work very well within the federal government on that. And so I'm going to continue to do that. Fourth is monitoring climate risk and how markets can become more climate resilient. And so that includes sort of watching to see, you know, what happens with the drought in the Mississippi River and these other extreme weather events. And then also just looking at the opportunities in the market in the transition to a net zero economy. So, you know, Scott, you gave me this opportunity to give a speech on this. We have a lot of derivative products trading in our market in this area. And so I'm going to continue to look at that. Technology is kind of the last thing. It ended up I think uh, my agenda this past year with more crypto than I expected. I think that's probably because there were these pending congressional bills that were being drafted up. And then also just we saw a tremendous growth in the market. 
I didn't expect it to be that much. And so I wanted to make sure that I brought my experience in protecting retail customers and protecting against illicit finance. I've conducted a lot of money laundering investigations and prosecutions. And then my experience related to risk in the 2008 crisis. So we did a lot of enforcement in that. This has dominated actually my conversations with international regulators. So I hope this year, I expect my focus will broaden to technology as a whole. And I think I'll be especially with the TAC, the Technology Advisory Committee. You are the sponsor of the CFTC's Technology Advisory Committee, which held its first meeting on March of 2023. The agenda covered a deep dive into decentralized finance and cyber resilience, which you just mentioned. And it's tough to avoid the crypto conversation. It also introduced the concept of responsible artificial intelligence. What do you see as the key priorities for this committee going forward? It's been really fantastic to get that advisory committee up and running. As I look at the priorities, I kind of went to the charter and sort of start there. And so when I look at it, the charter, it talks about the role. And so this would also be my priorities, right? That the Technology Advisory Committee is going to sort of assist the CFTC in identifying and understanding the impacts and then the implications of technological innovation in our markets and financial services, and then provide advice on application and utilization of these new technologies. Also provide advice to the commission on the commission's own investment in technology, like for surveillance and enforcement, and then more broadly inform the commission's consideration of all these technological related issues to support our mission. I believed in reconstituting the TAC that we needed to stack the membership with technology experts who could really help us understand the technology before we're making policy decisions related to technology. I'm sure you've heard this, right? People come in and say, this is new, innovative technology, whether it's crypto or or whatever. So it needs entirely new regulation. I hear that all the time. I think, why? Once I boil it down, the risks look a lot the same. And so what happens is these tech companies come in and And they come to talk to me and I can only describe it as like a pitch, a sales pitch. And so I found myself sort of not knowing which part is real, which part is more aspirational than reality. And then just honestly, which part is is frankly hogwash. And so here I am like asking what I thought was pretty standard questions for a regulator. Do you have independent third party audits of your system? And I told, oh, that's not how technology works. And so, you know, a lot of it was me sort of saying, I don't want to get pitched, right? I want experts to come in, tell us how the technology works. And then when they understand the regulatory concerns or congressional concerns, and we say, okay, well, how do we address those specific concerns? And so that's ultimately going to be the priority wherever the technology goes and whatever the use case. Now, as the dust has settled on the bankruptcy of FTX and the collapse of several other crypto entities occurred last year as well, and there remains a, a number of legal questions, including what rights investors have following a bankruptcy and who legally owns customer assets held by crypto exchanges and other intermediary. What lessons have been learned from that turmoil and how important is it to have a clear, consistent contractual framework that spells out the rights and obligations of both parties following a default or pure regulatory coverage that would spell that out? 
you know, you had held ISTA's crypto forum that I spoke at October 26, which is before the FTX collapse, where I listed a lot of risks that I was seeing in the crypto market. A lot of it was either the same risks I was seeing in 2008 or novel risks related to crypto. And unfortunately, we saw a lot of those risks then actualize a few weeks later. I gave this speech a little bit later after FTX's collapse saying crypto is in a crisis of trust and some of the lessons to be learned is like how heavily dependent financial markets are on trust. For many years, people didn't trust cryptos, gun runners, and dark net. And then all these centralized exchanges come in, right? They seek to gain the public trust. They do it through celebrities and Super Bowl commercials and create all this buzz. And they're testifying before Congress. And they have all these commercials, right? The most trusted way to buy and sell crypto. And so you start to see this mainstream adoption. Here, I believe at that point, the government has to step in and do more regulation in order to protect the markets and protect those customers. When I think about why FTX is so scandalous, right, it's it gained the public's trust and then violated it. And that trust, it was already kind of down, starting with, with Terra Luna and the crypto winner. And so these other lessons learned kind of like, where were the gatekeepers who failed customers and investors? Where was the due diligence by these venture capitals and the other equity investors? So they also share in that violation of trust. There were massive governance failures. That's a lesson learned when we look at sort of what John Ray said, utter lack of record keeping, corporate control, any separation. So how can you have all of these gatekeepers and equity investors with that situation? Then there's sort of the independent check on management, banning commingling, Resolving these conflicts of interest and having strong cybersecurity, that's all lessons learned. Let me get to the other issue you raised, which is this issue about a clear framework for customers and the companies. The industry's got to get better about disclosures and user agreements and others and making sure, number one, that the content is really easily understandable. And also delivery, the way it's delivered is delivered to customers in a way that truly informs them about their rights or risk. And so, for example, in the Celsius bankruptcy, if you look at the actual disclosures, they're very clear. They're in very plain English about essentially you give up all ownership rights to Celsius. But it's the delivery, right? You know, it's what's called click wrap agreements. We all, especially since the pandemics, we all are scrolling through these like e-disclosures on our phone. We hit accept. We may not read it. We probably don't read it or understand it. Those click wrap agreements are being upheld in court as in Celsius. If I could just sort of do one major lessons learned on all of us and say what the best thing I think needs to happen for the industry and regulators and what should be doing right now in the digital asset space is putting customers first And that gets to the issue you raised, but it also gets to all of these other issues. You're not going to have these conflicts of interest or commingling or putting your affiliates first or your founder first if you put customers first. Now, the other big story that we've kind of had to deal with this year was the cyber attack on ION markets. Your attack meeting covered the ION attack. and You're also leading the drafting of the first cybersecurity rule for swap dealers and FCMs. What lessons can be learned from that event and what do we expect from the proposed rule? 
Yeah, so it's interesting. At, at TAC, we had Todd Conklin, who's the Deputy Assistant Secretary from Treasury. He's in charge of cyber. He dealt with ION as it was happening. He's also just a member of TAC. So I asked him to present. And so one of the things that happened after Russia's war with Ukraine was that the CFTC is part of this group of financial regulators related to cyber. It's called FIBIC. And FIBIC worked on a new playbook and ION was the first cybersecurity incident where that playbook got put into existence. So one of the really interesting things in terms of lessons learned that Das Conklin said at the TAC meeting was that most of the firms that were impacted by ION's attack did not categorize ION as a critical vendor. That's super important, right? That's a very important lesson learned because usually, you know, I've been talking for a while about third-party service providers being one of the top cyber threats. But the traditional ways that companies will think about third parties is to categorize them as critical or not critical and then have certain levels of of security. And that didn't work here. So I think we have to step back and we have to say, you know, one of the other top threats is ransomware. Here we have Lockbit doing the attack. It is now the largest ransomware gang in the world after DOJ shut down Hive. And it's going after what many consider not to be a critical player. So that's how ransomware as a service operates and Lockbit as a ransomware service as a service. So what it does is it recruits affiliates who then get a cut of the ransom. So all these affiliates can be anywhere and they can target any company. So I think a lesson learned is that firms have to do much more in terms of the due diligence and controls and the communication with all of their vendors, even the vendors that they determine to be non-critical. So one of the recommendations I've made is that firms can ask for regular what's called SOC 2 audits from their providers. The other thing you can do is you can limit access to your system. Let me say one of the lessons learned that I think CFTC and Treasury did a good job on, which is regulatory scrutiny and flexibility. And that was very important as things were unfolding. The final lesson learned is the need to bring confidence to the market. So you remember when all of this was happening, as it was happening day by day, you start to see fear or uncertainty in the market and you worry about that starting to drive market behavior. So when Deputy Assistant Secretary Conklin told the press that it was not systemic, that's when you saw the markets calm down. So that's sort of part of the playbook, right? The new playbook. On the rulemaking, my my office and I have been working hand-in-hand with the staff. This predated ION because I've been talking about cyber and talking to the chairman a lot. The chairman asked me to lead this rulemaking. This would be our first cyber rule that applies to FCMs and swap dealers. Given that most of the swap dealers are prudentially regulated, we wanted to spend a lot of time talking with prudential regulators about what they're doing, which is really important because they're all redoing their third-party cyber risk management. So we want to get the benefit of their thinking and where they're going. So been a lot of meetings with them, as well as NIST, who is updating and others as we're looking at the different standard centers. And Scott, you and I have talked about this. But the idea is to have a seamless integrated approach where We're not just sort of piling on additional requirements. We're very integrated as a government thinking together. But let me say in cyber overall, what you are seeing in this administration's approach right now is to switch from thinking about incident response, which is how you thought about cyber before, and to think about how to achieve cyber resilience. And that's why you see even the CFTC moving to like zero trust architecture and those kinds of issues. 
Now, I'd like to get your thoughts on the existing rules and how they might leverage technology to get a better regulatory outcome, either through improved data analytics or operational improvements. Let's start with data. The CFTC recently implemented reforms to its swap data reporting rules, and other jurisdictions will do the same over the next couple of years. Now, while the data standards are more consistent, they are not identical, which makes any cross-border review a challenge, and our members remind us of this all the time. As you know, ISDA has proposed using the common domain model, a data standard for financial products, trades, and lifecycle events, to facilitate compliance and consistency in reporting information to trade repositories worldwide. How are you thinking about data and data analytics, and will the TAC focus on technology related to data to improve the work that you need to do? Our world is swimming in data, right? The problem is not that there's not enough data. It's so much data that it overwhelms, or like you say, the data is not consistent or comparable, which then is even more overwhelming. And so the question is really, how do you make it more useful? And that's something that is just been working on, of course. And in my 20 years as a federal employee, I've seen that it usually takes some problem and then someone has a vision to solve that problem. And then everyone has to hang in there because it can take years. I'm sure with your common domain model, that was the situation, right? There's a problem. Someone has a vision to solve it. It's going to take years. When I was counsel to SEC chairman, Chris Cox, I covered what was this big data technology project called XBRL. XBRL is something I think everyone takes for granted at this point. So it used to be if you went on SEC Edgar's system and you pulled up a company's like 10K, 10Qs or the other SEC reporting, it was not electronic or interactive. You would just literally pull up the PDF and you would have to scroll through like hundreds of pages, right? This is like 2007, 2008. The crisis hits. Everyone wants to be able to look through these filings of these big banks along with other public companies, especially investors. We had been working on XBRL, but this really sort of put the pedal to the metal. Now you can go to a company's like annual report, you can jump through the hyperlinks to whatever section you need. That's XBRL. That's great vision. Not easy to get there. I was working with SEC's IT group on the technical aspects, but also working on with the staff, the division of corporate corporate finance on the substance, where are those links? And then we had to do the rulemaking. It was a process that kept going after I left, but it brought efficiency, consistency, and allowed for faster and easier comparison. Then I think about what the SEC did and FINRA did with CAT, the Consolidated Audit Trail, which had been long going on while I was there. Ultimately, a game changer, electronic audit trail of every trade, cancellation, modification, trade execution. This is in exchange-listed equities and options. Great vision, a beast of a process. I think it took around a decade, but a game changer for data. When I was running SIGTARP, Special Inspector General for TARP at Treasury, that was a law enforcement office. And we had a forensic lab, which was really crucial to what we did. Not sort of physical DNA, but forensics on the financial side. So we use technology all the time in investigations. I'm not going to give away all the law enforcement tradecraft, but a couple of high level uses that I've spoken about are kind of using technology to find anomalies or trends or red flags to establish connections between people and companies. And then of course, to track the flow of funds. So that's where I've experienced where tech can increase not only efficiencies, but enable a greater public interest. This is sort of the vision, right? Transparency or combating crime at SIGTARP. So I do think the TAC could consider using use cases for technology 
related to these public interests. And I'm very interested in anyone's ideas. And I appreciate you've been giving me yours and also the TAC members ideas. I think a lot can be done. It's just going to be sort of a challenge in figuring out where to go and what to focus on. Now, on the operational side, many more entities now exchange margin following the implementation of the margin rules for non-clear derivatives. However, some firms have struggled in times of stress to process large increases in margin calls and settlement volumes due to continued reliance on really manual interventions and a lack of interoperability or lack of automation. We think greater standardization and end-to-end automation would help drive efficiency, reduce the risk in collateral management. Is this something that's on the TAC agenda? And have you heard from people about this stress in the market? It did come through in the dash for cash, and it certainly came through in the UK uh, LDI crisis. Yeah, this is actually an issue that I've talked about with different market participants. I've also talked about it with international regulators. It's really interesting as you look at sort of standardization automation, you could certainly see where it can bring benefits like not only improving efficiency, but sort of the consistency and getting away from those manual processes or or bespoke processes, which can in in many ways reduce risk. We were just talking about ion markets and CMs and others had to go to these manual processes, which was tough. At the same time, we always have to consider whether something introduces new or different risks. So if you think about what happened with high-frequency trading, you think about credit or margin decisions made by algorithms rather than a human who looks at the client wholly in terms of credit risk and uses their experience in the market. We have to sort of have that balance. And the challenge is to really figure out which processes should be digitized in a way that's going to kind of reduce human error and drive efficiency. One of the areas you and I, Scott, have talked about is technology to identify like in collateral management, so even to like identify eligible collateral. And I think you've raised a real compelling case that needs to be explored. This idea of automation is the reason why TAC took up the concept of responsible AI in our very first meeting. I have been going around talking to exchanges and financial institutions about their use of AI, and they're already, AI's already in use. I'm asking, how is it used? Where is it used? And we know that AI is likely to be increasingly used for automation. AI is all over the news right now. We've got this new phase of AI called regenerative AI. It's been launched. And so, you know, you have to think about sort of this idea of responsible AI or ethics in AI is really important as the deployment and use of AI grows. So what does that mean? Under this concept, right, the purpose of AI is to augment, not replace human intelligence. AI has to be transparent and explainable, can't be opaque, so you don't know what is happening with these processes. And then there's considerations like the social impact. Obviously, automation can take many people out of jobs. There's data privacy. There's bias. If you're using data that has historical discrimination or bias in it, it could continue that. And then there's concerns about disinformation. All this is to say it's not that AI or algorithms or other automation should not be carefully studied. It should be for benefits and their risks. In fact, most people are using some form of AI or algorithms in one sense or another 
in our use, just even in our home and, and work use. And so we have to be responsible in the use of technology, which is why I put AI experts on the TAC membership. The other thing that we have to be conscious of, and I've heard from a number of different stakeholders on this point, is that we have to be mindful that when we move to an automated or standardized practice, there has to be a transition period. And we have to be conscious of uh, the fact that a lot of this costs money and may take investments in new technology or systems. And interoperability really can be a high challenge in this transition. Even if you just look at your home life, I had the situation where we had too many subscriptions at home and I got rid of them because how many subscriptions for like music do you need? But then I got really frustrated because I said, Alexa, play Brown Eyed Girl by Van Morrison. And I needed to play on Apple Music and it basically refused, right? <laughs> so that, that's interoperability, right? Different systems not integrated with each other. This can be a high hurdle. You see interoperability also come in when there are acquisitions, So when you have further concentration through acquisitions in an industry, a lot of times what you get is interoperability. So you have different parts of the company operating on different systems. So this all makes sort of standardization and automation very challenging, but we have to sort of look at that balance and figure out how we take the best of technology and use it to have all these great benefits without introducing new risks or new challenges. Now, at the beginning of the conversation, you mentioned the speech you gave at the ISDA ESG forum back in March regarding greenwashing and the type of fraud that you see, and you set out some proposals for a clampdown in this area. What actions do you think are needed to tackle this issue, and what progress is the CFTC making on this front? Yeah, so, you know, I have proposed that the commission should promote market integrity by increasing enforcement resources and expertise to combat greenwashing and other forms of fraud. And one of this question is, what is greenwashing? And I've been a law enforcement official now for 21 years, and I think greenwashing is a form of fraud and it goes in all areas of this type of market. I'm really looking at this area of our markets very similar to digital assets We have over 200 climate-related derivatives products that are listed on our exchanges right now. Then we have some uncounted number of swaps. So I think whatever the label you want to use, whether it's greenwashing, fraud, misrepresentation, these can all lead to serious harm. It can distort market pricing, which is a real issue because pricing is not always clear in the use of some of these products and the trading of some of these products. But it can also seriously damage a company's reputation to the extent they're getting these products, thinking it's going to help them with their net zero strategy. And then ultimately, it undermines the integrity of the markets. So I think with my enforcement experience, I was sort of looking at this and saying, you know, we have a decent sized market that is growing. It's going to continue to grow as more look at our markets as an opportunity to help them with their net zero strategies. And so, you know, our our enforcement program should really be combating this greenwashing, other fraud or other uh, illegality, both in our derivatives markets and also our spot markets under our anti-fraud jurisdiction, which could impact our derivatives market. But it's not been an area that we've really been in. And so I think it first starts with increasing the enforcement resources, the expertise, having like a task force to work on that. 
I don't want to give away sort of my internal trade craft here, but I think we are certainly starting down that path and we have a new enforcement director and I feel confident that we'll be moving in that direction. One of the other things that I proposed at the ESG forum, Scott, is that the commission enhance its understanding of how the derivatives products in our markets are being used to manage climate-related financial risk. And so one of the things I proposed, as you know, was to create this new category that identifies environmental, climate, sustainable, uh, green-related products that are trading in our derivatives markets. When I went to go, me and my office went to go kind of look at what was in our markets, there was no way to do that. So we had to sort of go through each exchange and kind of hand do that. But that makes it kind of difficult. If we can kind of get it in one category, we can monitor what's happening and we can see what's working, what the market is picking up on. The other thing we could do is, Going back to the greenwashing issue that you raised, we can conduct surveillance that can help enforcement to police fraud and manipulation. And then we can dig down to the spot market that might tie to the derivatives market. So very, very similar to what we're doing with digital assets. We had this thing we put out in, I think, 2018 called Heightened Review of Digital Asset Markets. And we basically just take that and sort of scratch out digital assets and put this environmental slash climate related, and then just take each step and do it that way. And that way, we have a good handle on a market that is very much in our existing authority right now, our existing jurisdiction with the derivatives that are already trading there. But then also we can pay more attention to the specific spot markets. I think it's important. We want to make sure that voluntary carbon markets are utilized for net zero purposes and appropriately. Now, there's another area that I'd like to get your impressions on. Futures on voluntary carbon credits are considered commodity futures contracts, which means that the CFTC has jurisdiction over these products. Now, when voluntary carbon credit futures are physically delivered, the credits are delivered into registries. In other words, registries serve as delivery points for physically settled voluntary carbon credit futures. How are you thinking about the CFTC's oversight of the voluntary carbon credit market, including the registries? And does the CFTC have an interest in ensuring that this market has transparent and fair rules? This is something that I've been sort of kicking around this whole year. And I've had the opportunity to talk to some of these registries, some of the standard setters, and then others in this space. The futures on the voluntary carbon credits are considered commodity futures contracts. So we're talking about kind of what is in our space. And we do have some of those trading on our exchanges. So if we step back and we look at voluntary carbon markets, they're really being looked at as an opportunity to manage climate risk. So when I think about it, we start off with how the market is starting to look at these carbon credits. And first, more and more, the market's kind of looking at it and saying the carbon credits should be complementary, not in replace of a company reducing greenhouse gases. And I'm hearing a lot of excitement and interest, but then something you raise is not all the carbon credits are created equal. There's these questions about credibility, concerns about integrity, and it's really an area with particular concern over greenwashing. And so what you saw is the market for voluntary carbon markets sort of going like this, and then it just kind of went like this. It started, it was on a very steep high rise and then just started to come down with companies basically saying, 
there are concerns about credibility. And that's a recent survey. Ideally, what you want is you want the market to signal through pricing those carbon credits that are high quality versus those that are not. But here we've got insufficient price transparency. It's largely OTC market. It's highly fragmented. And so one of the things I've been thinking about is the idea of bringing more of these credits onto exchanges. I think that will increase confidence in the products and the transparency in the pricing. So I think first thing we need is a way for anyone in the market to kind of distinguish high quality carbon credits from others. So that way the market forces kind of go in and distinguish between pricing. And then the idea is if you bring them on exchange, ideally you bring some kind of trust and credibility that the exchange did some due diligence, which is going to bring greater price transparency. And so the CFTC certainly has an interest in that. But then the idea is what is the due diligence that the exchanges are doing, right? And so we have some of this trading on derivatives exchanges. It's not a lot, it's growing, but we do have direct regulatory oversight over that trading in the exchanges. So one of the things I've been doing is I've been talking with the different exchanges about what their standards are, what is their due diligence, how are they dealing with the registries, how are they dealing with standard setters. And so what I proposed is that the exchange basically has to certify to us that they've done due diligence on the credit. And one way for that is for them to be in discussions with the registries, not just take anything the registry's done. Another way is to maybe reference the Integrity Councils for Carbon Principles, either those or maybe the principles behind them, like you were saying, no double counting, independent verification. I also think there needs to be greater education in this space because I want market participants to be informed. And I think there's a lot of confusion in this space. The hallmarks are of high quality credits are not well known. Additionality is an area that is ripe for greater education as to what that means. And then, of course, as I said earlier, I think we've got to exercise our anti-fraud enforcement authority in the spot market because it's a market where fraud is ripe. Interpol said this is an area where they see significant concern over fraud, and that can ultimately erode trust and confidence. And so we want to be able to ensure that there's market integrity to be able to bring confidence. That goes back to the first thing I said, which was my first priority is ensuring that markets are working well. And here we've got some issues in a market that could work, but it just needs someone to be able to ensure that there's integrity in the markets and you can find ways where people who want to invest in this and take the opportunity can determine and have the information they need to know whether it's a high quality credit or not. It's fascinating, right? We want this market to be successful. We want good pricing and transparency on these credits. We want prices a little bit higher here because that will drive different behaviors. Hopefully we get our arms around it. Trust that you will and that we'll have a good robust market. Yeah, I mean, this idea of price transparency that you bring up is really what's been driving as I've been thinking about this, because we always say, you know, our derivatives markets hedge risk and bring price transparency. And I think the price transparency issue is kind of the largest concern here. If there is not enough information to be able to separate what's high quality, what people can trust in and have credibility in, then the price transparency is not going to be there. And so that's the reason why... I'm making these proposals because I think sort of a fundamental reason for why we have our markets is not really working well in this space. I'd like to finish with a question about you. 
You're a career public servant. You've held a number of high-profile roles as a financial regulator, which we've talked about today. What have been your career highlights so far, and what does public service mean to you? So public service, for me, means service, right? It means putting the public interests ahead of me or my interests. It's about others. My career has been about serving the public, not about me. At the same time, it's been a really rewarding career. And so a few highlights. I'm the first out LGBTQ commissioner at either the CFTC or SEC, both of which I can tell you have LGBTQ employees and a lot of allies. So I'm very proud to represent them. And it was a real honor for me to be invited this year to the White House to see President Biden sign the Respect for Marriage Act. That was a real highlight for me. I'm very proud, secondly, as the Special Inspector General for TARP, that SIGTARP was one of the only offices that was able to investigate and prosecute bankers during the crisis, working with the Department of Justice. And we had court sentencing 74 bankers to prison taking them out of the banking system for crimes that ultimately ended up hurting their bank and and making it safer. And that's something that it often gets said, no one went to jail for the financial crisis in terms of bankers. It's just not true. And it's something I'm very proud of. And it was not an easy lift. And then there are a couple of things I always think about. One is I led uh, our investigation with the United States Attorney for the Southern District of New York to bring a criminal case against General Motors. During the time they were in TARP, they failed to recall an unsafe ignition switch. And so what happened was the car would turn off while driving if hit by the driver's knee or the keychain was too heavy. And so what would happen is the car would turn off while driving. That turned off the power steering. Lots of drivers and passengers died or were seriously injured. It also turned off the airbag. So it led to a number of deaths, tragic story. And the worst part of it was that we found that the issue could have been fixed for less than a dollar a car. So when the federal regulators asked him about it, GM said it was on a safety defect. And so I, I can remember it was my birthday, September 17th, 2015, I believe. Preet Bharara and I did a press conference announcing that we had found criminal conduct and that GM had resolved it with big changes to their corporate controls related to recall of auto parts to never allow this from happening and then payment of, of 900 million. And I can recall that morning in the, in the night before that I sat with our agent on the case who had to call the families of the victims. We could not relieve them of their suffering, but we were able to bring some accountability and some change so that other families were impacted. Then what happened is the car companies then tripled the amount of auto park recalls. And so many of you have probably experienced getting notifications of auto park recalls, but ultimately it saves lives and being a financial regulator, that's kind of the only career highlight I have where I can actually point to saving lives. And then lastly, let me just give this one highlight. I had the privilege of working closely with Congressman John Lewis. There was a TARP-funded foreclosure prevention program that gave money to state housing agencies. And I found out that in Georgia, they were turning down, I think, 80% of the people who applied. They basically just weren't using the funds. It wasn't an effective program. It wasn't efficient. And ultimately, I found that there was mismanagement of the program, and it was having a really disproportionate impact on communities of color in and around Atlanta. And 
people were losing their generational homes. And this is something Congressman Lewis talked to me about. So he asked for my help and I worked really closely with him in his office to kind of find out exactly what was wrong. Too much red tape that sometimes was impossible to meet. And they said they were guarding the funds. So ultimately what happened was we were able to make improvements to the program and then more people had access to the funds. And these were funds that were intended to help them. And so that's where I can sort of see how my work has made a difference and where I can see how my service makes a difference in people's lives. That's the career highlight for me. Public service is a great opportunity to make a difference and have a huge impact on others. It's very rewarding. And if you can wake up every day and take on a new mission, it's phenomenal. That's all the time we have. You've been a fantastic guest. I really appreciate your uh, the wide-ranging conversation we've had today. Best of luck on your agenda and the work on technology and green products, et cetera. So thanks very much. Scott, you finished with a couple of questions on voluntary carbon markets and the threat of greenwashing, which is a fascinating topic and one that we've discussed in a couple of other recent episodes. But I'd like to rewind a bit and focus on the questions you asked about how technology can help drive better, more efficient outcomes. You talked specifically about regulatory reporting and collateral management, but can you give a couple of other examples? Well, I started with those two examples because it's an area that we're very focused on in terms of regulatory reporting and collateral management to really improve current operations and solve some serious problems in our financial sector. But there are also other examples. For instance, the negotiation of legal legal agreements uh, historically has been resource intensive, inefficient, and prone to error, involving reams and reams of paper and lots of back and forth between counterparties on email, not the most robust record-keeping source out there. So in response, we've developed is to create And Is2Create is a platform that allows firms to negotiate and execute documentation completely online, as well as capture data from these documents. Now, using this technology, it helps make the negotiation process more efficient and less time-consuming, and the data can be used in further processes throughout the life cycle. Another great example of a solution we've delivered is, is the standard initial margin model, which allows firms to use a standardized industry-wide model to calculate initial margin requirements for non-cleared derivatives. This is uh, making the calculation process far more consistent and reduces the potential for disputes. We're also currently developing new data and digital roadmap to identify what further data solutions may be needed across the derivatives lifecycle. This is a fascinating look for where we're going to put resource and focus our time over the next three to five years solving problems again just like we have in past solutions uh, to make everybody's life easier, cheaper, more efficient. Great. Needless to say, information on all of those solutions is available on the ISDA website, www.isda.org. So please do check them out. Please also keep an eye open for future episodes. We've got a great pipeline of guests coming up. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to The Swap. Keep in touch with ISDA via our website, www.isda.org, and our social media channels. See you next time.